and the, the town was grieving over this, and they concluded that the tree was cursed and that the tree had an unclean spirit in the tree. And so the evangelist said, well, let's deal with this right now. So he goes to the tree in the center of the town, and he prays over it, and he, he you know, casts out anything that might be there. And he's telling this story uh, to the hundreds of people gathered uh, to hear him preach. And he tells the story, and then the guy gives an altar call. And hundreds of people just pour to the front. And people are getting saved, set free, delivered, encountered by the Lord. And my friend Dan is going, wow, I can't believe this tree story had that effect. The next night, they go to a different town. And this guy gives the same story about the cursed tree. And then he gives this altar call. Again, hundreds of people pouring to the front, coming to Christ, giving their life to Jesus. And this happens in town after town for about a week. And at the end of the week, my friend Dan uh, is at a, a table. The, the missionary is there, his, his others with him, and the translator, who all week has been translating this guy's sermons. And Dan leans over to me and says, man, I... I'm just shocked at the effect that this, this tree story is having in every single town we go to. How, I'm just curious, like, how have you handled that? Like, how have you taken that story and packaged it? And the guy goes, I have not translated one word that man said. Turns out, all week long, he'd just been preaching the gospel. Just preaching the story of God himself coming to a desperate, needy humanity. Apparently, people responded well to that message. And he said, I would have been run out of town if I had just preached the, the tree story all week. Your stories, your individual personal stories, have great value. They do. But especially as your story finds itself wrapped up in the great story that God has been writing throughout centuries, throughout millennia now. And it's that story that we are seeking to embody in our own personal stories. I want us to feel the weight of that. And I hope that we, you, feel the ancientness of this story that we've been brought into that far transcends the little sliver of existence that is your life and far transcends the tiny fragment of history that is American Christianity that is ancient and old, even foreign in ways because it's global and it's for all peoples. 27 centuries ago, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. For to you, a child is born. To you, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. El Gibor. Mighty God, Abiyad, Everlasting Father, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. We've already heard Luke 2 several times this year. Let's read it again as we read about the unfolding of this great ancient story. And, and if you can change the slides for me, that would be great. Let me see if this works real quick. There we go, it does. Okay, awesome. If you'll change sides for me, Mary Jo, that'd be great. 
Luke 2, verse 1, I'll read to verse 20, says, In those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the angel of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So, verse 11 says this, again, the angels declare, for unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord is born. We have these three titles here, Christ, or we could say Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Now, Messiah, or Christ, just the Greek translation of Messiah, uh, that was a Jewish Title. There weren't any Gentiles or non-Jews going around hoping for or pointing to a king or a ruler that they were saying, that's the Messiah. It was only Jews looking for a Messiah. But these other titles, Savior or Lord, these were all titles that were given of Augustus Caesar, who we've already been introduced to in verse 1 of this chapter. In the time of Caesar, he was the one who people knew to be, was publicly recognized as Lord Savior of the world, and even Son of God. And so to ensure the stability of Rome, the Romans insisted that people swear these titles of Caesar. And that would look like just a common conversation like this. Someone would come up to you and say, Caesar is Lord. And the proper obedient response was, Caesar is Lord. Or Caesar is Savior of the world. Caesar is Savior of the world. Hail Caesar, Son of God. Hail Caesar, son of God, right? And so for all the talk of presidents in America functioning as kings and emperors, we do well to remember we don't live in an imperial state like the first century. If someone says to you, Biden is savior of America, you can respond to that either with the right hand of fellowship 
or the middle finger of rejection. <laughs> Freedom of speech is a wonderful thing. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, they didn't have freedom of speech in their time. Here's Caesar Augustus, or a, a statue of him. It was with Augustus that Rome well and truly moved away from being a republic into being an imperial state, with an emperor at its head. Augustus brought about this stability for, for the people of Rome, for the, the, the territories and the empire of Rome, because there was this just years of turmoil following the murder of his great uncle Julius Caesar. And he came in, crushed his rivals, and ruled with utter surety. And so for 45 years of his reign, he brought about what came to be called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, this 200-year era of unprecedented um, peace and prosperity. The, Rome's borders were protected. Nobody could get in. In fact, they expanded their territories it was this time of wealth and opulence, especially for those of privilege and status. It was a time of uh, the arts and culture flourishing, uh, increased infrastructure with roadways being built, which allowed for mobility that had never been seen before across great distances. All of that came with the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, really beginning with Caesar. Uh, preacher Andy Stanley talks about how, in, in reality, the child of Bethlehem should be a footnote to Caesar Augustus. But he goes on to say that in this story, it's Augustus who's a footnote to the child of Bethlehem. This chapter begins in Luke 2, verse 1, with a giant of human history, Augustus, known far and wide as Lord, Savior of the world, and Son of God. And yet the story pivots quickly away from him to this backwater town of Bethlehem, where to a group of humble shepherds, the Messiah, the Lord, and the Savior has been announced. Christ is central, and Caesar is just a footnote in the story mentioned in verse 1. And that's why we talk about it, I feel like, each year, don't we? The smallness of this story, the humbleness of this story, in the way every year as we come to the Christmas story, we find ourselves confronted by it. How we begin with the one, the, the era-defining figure, Caesar Augustus in verse 1. But that's not where God is active, is it? He's, he's active in the discrete, small places of your lives too. Unto you is born, the angels declare. Who is the you in the context of this story? Who is the you? The people of Israel, yes, but even more specifically in the context. The, the, someone said the shepherds. That's right. The, the sh immediately, obviously more than that, but immediately in the context, it's these, these poor shepherds. Um, and in this story, we have a poor, struggling Jewish family, a feeding trough for animals, a manger, and several poor shepherds. The only thing extraordinary about this story is a visitation of angels in the glory of the Lord shining around. But there's nothing out of the ordinary about a poor family bringing a child into meager conditions. I mean, even in our own time, over one billion children were born into poverty. And that's fully half of the over two billion children alive today. Now, for people like, well, Jordan and I, uh, 
who spent months preparing our baby room for Adeline with freshly painted walls, the perfect rocking chair, and, you know, the carefully purchased crib. (laughs) The thought of your baby sleeping in a pile of hay around a bunch of animals might sound awful, but for us first world Americans, we should remember that (laughs) so many children were born into situations every bit as harsh as the one we read about every year in the Christmas story. I think sometimes we Americans read the Christmas story as a, a baby being born into poverty as though it's some weird thing. (laughs) tragically that's what makes this story common very common there's nothing unique about a, a baby named Jesus being born into humble lowly conditions tragically that's what makes this story very normal very normal I want us to feel that right what makes this story unique is here we learn that we're dealing with a God who chose to be born in a lowly way He willed lowliness for himself. He wanted it to be this way. It absolutely could have been otherwise. And that right there, that earth-shattering truth, tells us a lot about the kind of God that you and I worship every single Sunday morning. The God we sing songs to. The God whose word we hear in moments just like this. The God whose body and blood we take in and who we fellowship around. It's good news. It's good news of great joy. As the shepherds declare, verse, 14, verse 10 says, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And again for verse, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the heavens, glory to God. On earth, peace to his people. In the heavens, let God be worshipped. On the earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. You know, I've got a running wish list of things in my life that I want to come together. And that when they do, I'll be joyful. And I've got a list of instabilities that once I get them out of my life, I'll be peaceful. Right? Maybe you do too. Even though, this is a bit of a side note, instability is one of the Holy Spirit's greatest tools in bringing about your sanctification. Just remember that. Comfortable people typically don't conform very much to the image of Christ. (laughs) So, that said, we spend a lot of our lives chasing joy this way, chasing peace this way. And it's not just us. Everyone wants peace. It's not just Christians. The world's chasing peace. Everyone wants a little more peace in their life, a little more joy in their life. The world is chasing what we could call Pax Romana. They're chasing the peace of Rome, which is basically crush your competition, defend your borders, protect your earnings or your winnings, reward loyalty, shame dissent. That's the peace of Rome. And when that happens... I'll be, at, I'll be at peace. I'll be at rest. I'll finally have that elusive joy. This story declares what we might call Pax Christi, the peace of Christ, which is peace among those with whom God is pleased. It's a different kind of peace, isn't it? The disappointments of my life too often leave me joyless. 
discontentment in my life, maybe you can relate, too often robs my peace from me. You know, most of us live life ruled by this vague hope or wish, maybe even a groan at times, that things will get better, things will get easier. And so we kind of console ourselves to push on another day, telling ourselves things will get easier, things will get better. They have to. I know they will. Right? And so we just kind of have this sense that it's got to get better. It's got to get easier. It's this idea that our lives are on this path of upward mobility. They should be and they will be. At some point, my financial strains will go away and never return. That relational breakthrough that I so want, it'll happen. Someday, my child will start making better choices. At some point, my church or business will double in size. Right? And our idea of God confirms this governing belief that things should and will get better. I mean, doesn't the Bible say something about God taking us from glory to glory? That's in there, right? As a pastor, I feel the need to tell you There are countless examples of saints who went to their graves with hopes and dreams that never came about, struggling under the hardship of life until the end of their days. I preached this sermon at a prosperity gospel church one time. They didn't like it. Several people told me I did not like your sermon. What if Advent is for the broken? What if Advent is for poor shepherds? But guess what? The next day, after beholding the Christ child, will wake up and still be poor shepherds. Maybe their material circumstances didn't change, but last night they beheld the glory of the Lord. And they knew themselves to be loved by God and invited into what he was doing in the earth. Invited into the living hope that is Jesus. Hope's a person. It's Jesus. And because unto you is Jesus Unto you is hope. Unto you is hope. I just want to encourage you, reach out this morning to the Lord. Even as I'm preaching, I hope you don't just see worship as song singing. Worship even now. You know, (laughs) the message becomes for us then, pretty similar to the shepherds, which is go glorifying and praising God with a heart open, open to the shalom of God, to the Sar shalom, the prince of peace, come to you. Peace to your overactive mind. Peace to your troubled soul. So that we become the kind of people who are looking for the peace of Christ rather than the peace of Rome. The peace of Christ rather than the peace of the world, because the peace of Christ is different. Jesus says, peace I leave you, I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. I mean, that to me is so instructive, giving you my peace. It's my peace. It's not like the world. I don't give you peace like the world promises peace. It's a different kind of peace. 
The angels came and testified of the birth of Messiah, lit up the night sky with their praises, their song, light. All this happened, and yet the circumstances of these shepherds didn't change, at least not that we know of, right? I mean, you want to talk about the person working a dead-end job? In the ancient world, the person working a low-paying, dead-end job was the shepherd. That was that person. But if you're a shepherd, you're the kind of person who works around mangers most days. And the news of the Son of God in a manger is pretty good news to you. Apparently, the Son of God is sleeping around animals, and that's got to be good news if you're out in a field sleeping with animals. Apparently, the Son of God himself has become poor and needy, and that's good news to the poor and needy. I just want to encourage you, open up your heart. At the end of, really, what I want today is a prayer ministry time for anyone who would like prayer. And there's a prayer that I have prayed for years now, and it's a very simple prayer. It's just, God, I'm desperate for you. And I'll say this to the Lord on repeat, and it's a twofold prayer for me. I, was really, I just want to say for a second, um, it's so powerful not just to feel your own desperation, but to see the desperation of others. Um, our first Wednesday service this month, uh, Cindy uh, preached and on, on desperation and hunger for God. And it just provokes you to see it. But for me, when I pray this prayer, it's twofold. At times, I'm saying, I'm longing for you. I'm desperately hungry for you, God. And other times, I'm out of touch with my hunger for God. And so I'm declaring my state. I'm a desperate man. Whether I feel it or not, in every instance, I'm in need of God. I've never known a moment where I didn't need God. So whether I feel it and I'm in touch with it, which I would like to be, or I'm not, I pray this prayer. God, I'm desperate for you. In many ways, it's what Mary has already opened up to the readers in chapter 1. The previous chapter, she says, he has shown strength. I, I underlined the activity of God, the verbs of God in this, these verses. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he sent away empty. Go ahead and get out of here. I'm sending the rich away empty. You see, Advent is really only good news to the poor and needy. Are you dwelling on your accomplishments and on the things you've acquired? Are you sitting high in life right now? If so, then I'm sorry to tell you, the Christmas story has very little to offer you right now. That's what Mary's Magnificat actually says to the careful reader. And that's why every year the Holy Spirit forces me to deal with this text, to examine my soul. Am I like the shepherd right now in life? I want to be. Holy Spirit, bring me here. This is where I need to be. You know, over the next week, you and I may have a few moments of dwelling on the incarnation the majesty and the mystery of God becoming man. But 
The message of the angels to the shepherds that God's son could be found lying in a manger will mean next to nothing to you and me if we're not hungry and humble, desperate for God. If you and I are rich and full, then we may be sent away empty this season. According to sweet little Mary, Advent scatters the proud. According to this sweet little 15-year-old, <laughs> Advent scatters the proud. Advent brings down the mighty. Advent sends the rich away empty. It's what it does. It's what it does. But there's gospel. There's good news of great joy if you're tired and nothing less than the coming of God will suffice for you. If that's you right now in your life, then unto you this day in the city of Birmingham is a savior, is the Lord, is the Messiah. Unto you is the proclamation of joy and peace in the midst of a hostile world. I want to go and invite up the worship team put up this quote. Jonathan Martin said this, the good news about Advent is that the world doesn't operate simply on cause and effect. God intervenes. I don't know about you, but sometimes I must just get this feeling of like, I'm just in this endless chain of cause and effect. I do this, which prompts them to respond this way. She said this, and then I said that. They were late on this, and so then I had to do that. And then they you know what I mean? Like you're just in this, like, feel like this cycle of cause and effect. You're just responding to your environment, and your environment's responding to you, and you're just locked in and putting out the next hottest fire. The good news of Advent is that God breaks that. He intervenes. He breaks into time and space. If Advent says anything, it says that. God breaks into time and space. He intervenes into human history, broadly speaking, and your life, personally speaking. That's the kind of God we serve. We're not locked in some chain, some endless cycle. God can touch you. God can awaken hunger. God can meet desperation. God fills the hungry with good things. Doesn't he? Let's stand. And I just want to invite you, if you, you're just saying, I'm, I'm hungry where I want to be. I'm desperate where I confess that I am. I just want to invite you, come forward. And we just want to pray for you. We'll just have people who will kind of just intersplice throughout. So again, I just want to invite you, if you're here this morning, you're saying, I'm just hungry. I want you, Lord. I want to see your touch. I want to be filled with good things. Come forward. We want to pray for you. And we will also continue to worship.